Ferry and Honey Sherman had it all. Wealth, respect, successful children, and loving friends. When they were found dead in their home in December 2017, the search for who hated them began. And three years later, it continues. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. All right, we are back with another episode. It is a heavy one, as they all are. And in the event you want some lighter true crime, less murder and more absurd criminals, I am going to recommend you check out the podcast, Excuse Me, That's Illegal. I will play a promo at the end and include the name in the show notes. It will definitely help lighten your mood a bit. But for this episode here on Crime Lines today, I do want to thank Amanda for recommending it to me. I take listener suggestions all the time. You can send them through email at crimelinespodcast at gmail.com or through any of my social media. Due to a lot of life happening around me recently, I am incredibly slow to respond more so than usual. But I do put every suggestion on a spreadsheet when it arrives so I don't forget them, or hopefully don't. Sources for this episode include a Bloomberg Businessweek article by Matthew Campbell called The Unsolved Murder of an Unusual Billionaire. Another major source was just overall the work of Kevin Donovan with the Toronto Star. He and the Star have been fighting in the courts to have more details of the case released. And a lot of details were released while I was in the middle of researching for this episode. So if you've heard this case before, there may still be some new details that I include. Kevin Donovan also authored a book called The Billionaire Murders that deep dives into the case, but also the business side of things. And business intrigue isn't exactly what we do here on Crime Lines, but I do recommend checking out that book if you are interested in getting more into those details. All of the sources will be on my website. So let's start with Barry Sherman. This episode is going to be biography heavy because honestly, I believe the answer to this case is most likely in what happened before the murders. Barry Sherman was a self-made billionaire, not like Kylie Jenner, who Forbes calls a self-made billionaire. Barry actually was. He didn't leverage family fame or immense wealth on his way up. What Barry leveraged was his brilliance. His grandparents on both sides of his family fled Jewish persecution, one set from Poland and the other from Russia, and they settled in Toronto, Canada, having to pretty much start over. Barry was an only child, and when he was nine years old, his father, who co-owned a zipper company, died suddenly of a heart attack. From then on, it was Barry and his mother. She worked as an occupational therapist to support them while Barry focused on school, and he excelled. He won a national physics contest while he was still in high school, not a school physics contest, a national one. 
At age 16, he enrolled at the University of Toronto in their engineering program. He was the youngest person to ever enroll in that program, and when he graduated, it was with honors and awards. During his summers off of school, Barry worked for his maternal uncle, Louis Winter. Lou had taken Barry under his wing after his father died. Lou owned a drug distributor and a medical lab called Empire Laboratories. Barry's work for his uncle wasn't on the science or even the business side of things. He was a delivery driver, but he paid attention, and his uncle taught him a few things about business. Barry then went to MIT on scholarship to study aeronautics in a doctoral program. And it was while he was there at MIT that his uncle Lou died unexpectedly in 1965. To compound the tragedy, within three weeks, Lou's wife Beverly died, though her death was expected. She had leukemia. Barry was 22 years old, and he reached out to the estate with a proposal. He wanted to run Empire Laboratories. The board turned down his offer, but then two years later, in 1967, Barry had graduated from MIT, and he made an offer not to run the company, but rather to buy the company. The board of trustees approved the sale, but they required Barry to figure out some way to protect the interest of Lou's four sons. They were all quite young when their parents died, and they were Lou's heirs. The initial deal the trustees wanted was more generous than Barry wanted to be. Eventually, the two sides hammered out an agreement where the boys could have employment at the company at the age of 21, and they could buy up to 5% ownership each when they turned 23. This would give, in the future, a potential 20% ownership to someone other than Barry. The deal was only good, however, if Barry still owned the company when the boys reached the age of 23. If he sold it before then, there was no requirement that he continue that provision with the next owners and the next owners after that. Also, if he sold the company, no proceeds from the sale would have to be set aside or anything like that into a trust for the kids. With this deal, Barry bought Empire Laboratories, and in 1970, 28-year-old Barry Sherman was very busy running and growing his company when he met 23-year-old Honey Reich through friends. Honey had been born in a camp in Austria for displaced persons. Her parents were Holocaust survivors, and she and her family relocated to Canada with the help of Jewish immigrant aid services. Honey was very young when her family settled in Toronto. Like Barry, Honey was a bright student. She received an arts degree from the University of Toronto and later an education degree from the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. Honey was also dedicated to giving back 
after she and her family had been given a second chance after the war. When she met Barry, she was a volunteer at a hospital, and that volunteer mentality would stay with her throughout her life. The two married within a year of meeting, and they were the definition of opposites attract. Barry probably would have never socialized with a single person, if not for Honey, who was an incredibly outgoing and warm person. And as Barry would keep track of drugs and development, mass orders, court papers that needed to be filed, and all the rest that comes with running his business, Honey had trouble finding her keys and her sunglasses on a regular basis. But while they were very different, they clearly connected on a deep level and loved each other very much, even when their differences led to frustrations. They would go on to have four children together, but before they filled up their house with kids, Barry shifted his business. He ran Empire for about five years or so before he did some share-swapping thing that I'm not going to pretend to understand. But in the end, he ended up with the money and not the company. Barry took the money that he made selling Empire, and he started his own company in 1974 called Apotex. It was similar to his uncle's business in that it dealt with generic drugs, but it grew to a much larger scale. Rather than making cheap aspirin or other over-the-counter medications, Barry's new company would work on generics for expensive and popular prescription drugs, things like the antidepressant Prozac and also AZT, which is an antiviral drug used to treat HIV. Barry put everything he had, time and money, into this company. He would work late into the evening, he took work with him on vacations, and pretty much did nothing but work. Honey, on the other hand, she spent all of her time with her kids and with her charity work. I don't know if you can be a professional volunteer, but that's what Honey did. It would take me this entire episode if I sat here and listed all the work she did. She sat on boards, she organized fundraisers, she funded projects constantly, whether it was into research or medical issues or education. Whatever it was, Honey literally made volunteering her full-time job. And she was able to do this because Apotex was so wildly successful, the couple didn't need another income. They wanted for nothing, though you wouldn't really know that looking at Barry. He drove his cars until they were breaking down. He wore whatever suit he happened to have in the closet. He didn't buy brand new just because he could. Any money he spent was mostly at Honey's insistence, but even then, it was fairly modest compared to what they could afford. Even though Honey did indulge in a few more luxuries than Barry did, she still lived a much less flashy life than they could afford. The one area they did spend money was on their house. In 1991, they built a huge home, a mansion really, for their family in the Toronto area. It had five bedrooms, nine bathrooms, there's underground parking, they have a pool out back, 
and in the basement was an indoor lap pool and sauna. And while Apotex provided very well for the family, eventually making Barry and Honey Sherman worth three to four billion dollars, not all of Barry's business enterprises were so successful. He regularly invested in companies, businesses, inventions, schemes from a wide variety of people that I can best describe as a cast of characters. These would be people who couldn't get funding through more formal means for whatever reason, things like bank loans or regular investors. Barry would take a chance on the little guy with a dream, and maybe that's because he was once the little guy with a dream. These investments generally never led to wide success or massive returns, and sometimes they came with a bit of scandal. Barry got involved in a multi-level marketing company called Nutrition for Life, whose face of the company was a man named Kevin Trudeau, no relation to Justin. Trudeau's Wikipedia page calls him a, quote, fraudster. Trudeau is currently in a U.S. federal prison for criminal contempt after the FTC basically told him to stop being shady and he decided to keep being shady. Another person Barry funded, and this one seemingly endlessly, was Frank D'Angelo. Frank did just about everything. He owned a restaurant. He made B-movies, he owned a brewery, he owned a food label, and at one time he tried to buy a hockey team. Frank has said that Barry funded and invested lots of money into him, and we get a little peek at this in 2007. The food label, D'Angelo Brands, filed for credit protection, and at the time in the listing, it showed that Barry Sherman was owed a couple million dollars from the company. And that is just one of Frank's businesses that Barry invested in. Yet Barry kept funding Frank's projects, and it seems it was in part because he didn't think Frank was taking him for a ride. He believed, it seems, in Frank and in Frank's hustle. Because when Barry felt like someone was taking advantage of him or using him, he would not hesitate to take them to court over it. Barry didn't sue because he wanted their money. He didn't need their money. He sued on principle more than anything. For instance, in the 1980s, Barry lost $600,000 when he attempted to set up a tax shelter that turned out to just be smoke and mirrors. He sued his accountants for negligence. Now, he didn't need that money, but he felt he had been duped and misled, and he wanted to litigate it. Barry ended up losing that case, but it was just one peg in a rack of court cases. The main people making money off Barry Sherman's back were his lawyers. He was one of the most litigious people in Canada. Even when he had billions of dollars, he would sue for an amount that would be scaled down to a normal income level, like $500. That's what it would be worth to the rest of us. 
However, like in the case of Frank D'Angelo, if he felt you dealt with him fairly, then you had nothing to worry about. At one point in 2015, Barry's son was worried about how Barry invested and gave away his money, and he felt it was putting his and his sister's inheritance in jeopardy. He was hoping to get his sister support in some type of intervention, and he sent them all an email that eventually got back to Barry. Barry saw the email, but he laughed it off, and really nothing came out of it. As Barry continued his relationship with his son, you have to wonder if he saw this as a well-intentioned move on his son's part, because Barry was sinking a lot of money into startups that didn't have a lot of hope of getting off the ground. But not all of Barry's lawsuits were for bad investments where he feels he was duped. He was often in court over medications and challenging patents held by the big pharmaceutical companies. That's expected. That's just part of the deal of running a business like he had. Big Pharma hated him because he'd go to court over their patents and often come out on top being able to make a generic drug cheaper. One notable incident wasn't against Big Pharma specifically. It was against a researcher. Apotex threatened legal action against a hematologist named Nancy Olivieri. She ran a trial on one of Apotex's medications for its possibility in treating a blood disorder. Dr. Olivieri's trial showed that the drug wasn't helping and was possibly harming the children. The Research Ethics Board told her to immediately inform her patients but Apotex told her that she couldn't due to a confidentiality agreement she had signed. In violation of her signed agreement, Dr. Olivieri informed the patients and published her findings. While the legal proceedings, from what I understand, didn't seem to go too far, the attempts to smear her reputation did. Though today, Dr. Olivieri is recognized for her contributions to independent scientific research, in part because she stood up to this pharmaceutical company. She did not let them influence her ethical obligations. But like I said, it did harm her in the short term. Oddly enough, this scandal seemed to hurt Dr. Olivieri, who was in the right, a lot more than at her Apotex or Barry Sherman, who, in my opinion, allegedly were in the wrong. Of course, other lawsuits Barry Sherman and Apotex were involved in had to do with governments and regulators, and this included things like price fixing. Some of these suits really show us what a savvy business person Barry was and how he could and would use whatever loophole he had to his advantage. It's really interesting because you see someone who was very stingy about spending money on himself and he gave so much of it away freely. He still did his very best to make sure that he was bringing in as much money as possible. One friend said that 
This is because Barry didn't see the value in the money so much as he saw money as a way of keeping score. And this appealed to Barry's competitive side. So while Barry's generous donations made him a lot of friends, he also made a fair number of enemies. And the most notable lawsuit for the purposes of what we're talking about today and the murders that we're going to get into in a minute was filed by Barry's own cousins, the children of his uncle Lou. Barry had not kept in touch with the boys after they had been adopted by another family, but he did reconnect with them in the late 1980s when they were older. Over the years, they became recipients of Barry's financial generosity. And one of the cousins named Carrie, he received a lot of support from Barry. We are talking somewhere around seven to eight million dollars. Carrie struggled through much of his young adulthood with substance abuse, and Barry wanted to help him build something for himself. Carrie told him he wanted to start doing home renovations, so Barry funded both his education and his business that he got started. Regardless of if Carrie turned a profit or not, Barry would continue to invest in his cousin's business. I'm saying invest, but maybe I should be saying loan. Barry had his cousin Carrie sign promissory notices for the money he gave him. But Barry wasn't calling these loans in. He wasn't requiring monthly payments or anything like that. Carrie told CBC's The Fifth Estate that it really didn't make sense to him at the time that Barry would just keep giving and giving and giving money, even as loans, when he's not seeing a return. Then Carrie and his brothers learned what they think was at the root of Barry's generosity, a touch of guilt. They found out about that provision in Barry's deal to buy their father's company, the one that said that they could buy 5% interest in the company each at the age of 23. But Barry had sold the company, and then he turned around and used the money to start a similar company, rather than just having expanded empire. In the lawsuit that followed, they accused Barry of doing this purposely to disinherit them. The lawsuit they filed was filed in 2007. It's kind of complicated which brothers and whose estates were involved, but Carrie was definitely involved, and he was one of the more vocal ones. In the lawsuit, they were basically asking for either the cash value of their 5% share each in Apotex or 5% ownership in Apotex. This lawsuit seems to have really hurt Barry deeply. He had been generous with his cousins, and in his mind, he had gone above and beyond over the years when he really didn't have to. But on the other side of things, if you felt you were entitled to 5% of a billion-dollar business, you might feel like your cousin wasn't as generous 
as it appeared when he was giving you far less than that and giving it to you as a loan. Now, did the cousins hope Barry would try to settle this out of court to make them go away? Maybe. But it wasn't about the money for Barry, according to his business associates. It was about what was fair. And in his mind, he had built this company over 30 years, and he shared the wealth that he accumulated with his cousins. So not only was he not going to settle, Barry filed a countersuit. He wanted his cousins to pay back the money he had given slash loaned to them over the years and pay his legal fees from this court case. Barry also started calling in the mortgages he held on homes that the Winter family lived in, as well as a few vacant homes that I think might have been part of Carrie's home renovation job. This case, this back and forth, went on for 10 years. In September 2017, a judge called the Cousins' lawsuit, quote, wishful thinking, and he dismissed it. Then on December 6, 2017, the judge ordered the Cousins to pay $300,000 in Barry's legal fees. And like I said, Barry was also calling in those millions of dollars in loans. Both sides intended to appeal the rulings. Carrie and his side, they wanted to appeal the dismissal of their lawsuit. And Barry was going to appeal the amount he was awarded in legal fees. 300000 was about a third of what he spent over the decade it took to litigate that case. So as I've been reading and researching this case, I really see a duality in Barry. He was very generous. I cannot overstate how much money he gave away. And I don't just mean to organize charities, but he'd give money to someone he heard was having trouble paying a tuition bill or paying their car note. He really did not seem to care about the value of that money that he was giving away. But then Barry would turn around and use that money almost as a weapon. After being awarded so much in this lawsuit against his cousins, Barry was still going to go for the portion he didn't get. His cousins at this point have virtually nothing, and he had $4 billion. Yet he was still going to pursue about $700,000 in legal fees. Barry could be generous with one hand and then ruthless with the other. So here we are finally to the timeline of the crime, and I hope this little biographical section lets you know why it may have been hard to narrow in on exactly who would have a motive to commit a crime against Barry and Honey Sherman. So it is December 13th, 2017. So we are talking a week after Barry won the judgment against his cousins. Barry and Honey had a meeting with the architects of a new home they were building. And it was really Honey's idea to move. She wanted to live closer to friends in the heart of the city. So they bought a property and tore down the existing house. They planned to build a mansion on the lot. Meanwhile, they had their current home on the market. 
Barry didn't necessarily see the point of building this massive new home. They were in their 70s. Barry was 75, Honey was 70, and their kids were moved out, so they didn't really need all that space. But Honey wanted there to be an event space right there in the house, which I'm sure she would have used to host any number of charity fundraisers. So on December 13th, which was a Wednesday, Honey drove to Apotex to meet with Barry and the architects to go over some of the plans. The couple were reportedly acting normal and getting along well as they picked out some various features for the house. After the meeting, Honey left Apotex around 6 p.m. and headed home. At 8.45, Barry left as well. At some point in the evening, Barry sent an email about a drug Apotex had in development, and that email is the last anyone heard from the couple. Because Barry suffered from insomnia, people were used to getting middle-of-the-night emails from him, but this night he did not send any. On Thursday, Barry didn't show up to work. As a workaholic, we can't characterize this as normal, but Barry was the founder of the company. It's not like he was punching the clock. People didn't question his movements. So it was notable that no one heard from him that day, but also not entirely alarming and not something people would necessarily question. On Friday, December 15th, we have quite a list of people going into the Sherman home for the first time since Wednesday. A little before 8.30 in the morning, their housekeeper, Nelia, showed up. She was going to do her usual routine and then help Honey make some latkes for a Hanukkah dinner that her daughter was hosting that weekend. Around the time Nelia arrived, a personal trainer named Megan also arrived. She was going to do a workout with Barry, and then when he headed to work, Honey would do her workout. Both of the women noticed that things were a little off as soon as they arrived, because the newspaper was on the doorstep. By 8.30 in the morning, Barry would have been up and moving, and he would have taken the paper in normally. Nelia grabbed the paper and brought it inside with her. She used her house key to enter through a side door, and Megan followed her in. And this is the second thing that Nelia noticed that was odd. The house alarm was not armed, and that would have been atypical. So we have Nelia and Megan going into the house when a third person arrives. Honey had scheduled routine furnace maintenance that morning. So Nelia let the HVAC guy in, and he went down to the furnace room. Megan was surprised that Barry and Honey were either not home or were still asleep. She had never shown up, and her clients just not been there. Then she had a passing thought that maybe they were in Florida, because Honey planned to leave on the 18th, and then Barry would join her later in the month. But maybe they decided to go early. But it did seem strange that they didn't tell anyone after Honey specifically made plans that week for all of these people to be at the house on Friday morning. 
Nelia went to check the master bedroom to see if the couple were still asleep, which they weren't, but the bed was made. So Nelia stayed at the house to complete the tasks that she had, while Megan, who had no one to exercise with, left. Then the HVAC guy finished what he was doing, and he also left. He said he noticed that there were some footprints in the snow on the ramp going down to the underground garage. They looked to him to not be fresh from that day, but more frozen in place, like they were a little older. Nelia was then alone in the house until 1045, when a realtor arrived with two clients to see the house. The Sherman's realtor, Elise, arrived right after them. Elise took the group through the house, pointing at all the features the way a real estate agent would do. Then she took them down to the basement, ready to show off this indoor lap pool and sauna. And it was in the pool room that she first saw something very odd. Elise wasn't sure exactly what she was seeing, except on the far end of the pool, she saw two people sitting in a weird position. Since they appeared to be upright, as in a seated position, her first thought was maybe they were doing yoga. Since Barry and Honey did work out and exercise regularly, this wouldn't be completely off the wall to assume they were doing yoga. But it seemed odd. It seemed uncomfortable to have intruded on. So she ushered the other agent and the couple out of the room. When they left the house entirely, Elise told Nelia what she saw and said she should go downstairs and check out what was going on. But Nelia was scared to. At this point, as they're having this conversation, we have yet another person come to the house as scheduled. And this was a gardener named Claire. Being winter, she was there to care for the house plants. Nelia and Elise told her about finding the couple in a weird position in the basement, and Claire said she would go check it out. While she was down there, Elise called Honey's sister Mary. Mary was already in Florida for this holiday vacation they were doing, and Elise asked Mary, had she talked to Honey recently? Did she know what was going on with Honey? Mary said she hadn't talked to her, but while she was on the phone with Elise, Claire came back upstairs. She was shaking, and she told them that the Shermans were in the basement and they were obviously dead. Mary heard this on the phone and told them immediately to call the police, which, of course, that's what they were going to do anyway. On the call, the emergency dispatcher mentioned CPR, but Claire knew it was far too late for resuscitation. And that was confirmed when the fire department arrived around 11.50. They went down to the basement, and they found the couple was long dead, at least 24 hours. The reason they were in that seated position was that they were being held in that position by belts around their necks that were then attached to the three-foot-tall railing of the pool. They were positioned so they were facing the wall and away from the pool. So Elise would not have seen their faces when she went down into the pool room 
and that explains a little bit more why she wasn't quite sure what she was seeing. Honey was slumped a bit to the side, and she had an injury to her face. Barry appeared to have no injuries, and he was seated with his legs in front of him and crossed at the ankle. He was also still wearing his glasses, so there appeared to be no sign of a struggle at all with him. Both Barry and Honey were fully dressed in regular street clothes, not their pajamas. They were also both wearing jackets that were pulled back and down, somewhat pinning their arms behind them. While investigators were still examining the scene, word got out that bodies had been found at the mansion, and the media absolutely swarmed. The police gave a statement saying that there were no signs of a break-in and that they were not looking for any suspects. The subtext was clear. This was interpreted by the media to mean the police suspected that this was a double suicide or a murder-suicide. And that is what they were saying. As for there being no signs of a break-in, that didn't really matter to those who knew the couple. They have said that the couple wouldn't have thought twice about opening the door to pretty much anyone who knocked. The killer could have just rang the doorbell and then rushed them when they opened the door. There was also a basement window that had been left open because they were trying to defume a newly painted room. And it's possible a door had been left unlocked as well. The house had several entrances, and the couple weren't always great with making sure they were all locked. The only security camera they had on the property hadn't even been turned on in years. No one even knew if it really worked anymore. So there was no way of knowing if anyone else had entered the house. The Shermans were frankly not that security-focused. And there were some other things, little things at the scene, that did make it look like there was possibly someone else involved. Barry's gloves and paperwork were found on the floor near the garage, which sounds, to me at least, like he could have been ambushed as he entered the home. Additionally, Honey's cell phone was found in the bathroom, and everyone has said it was a bathroom she never used, so it didn't make sense for it to be in there unless Perhaps she had grabbed her phone and ran into the nearest room, possibly to call for help, but then she was stopped. But of course, the media is reporting what the police are telling them at the time, and this was looking like a possible murder-suicide at the hands of Barry. And this reporting was incredibly upsetting to the four Sherman children who didn't believe that's what happened. They issued a joint letter addressing these rumors and asked the Toronto police to do a thorough investigation, and they asked the media to wait to report about the cause of deaths until they knew. The day after this letter, the case was assigned to the homicide squad, but from my understanding, that's pretty routine in a suspicious death. It was not a sign that the police had concluded 
this was likely a murder just yet. The Sherman children, on their own, retained an attorney who then hired retired detectives to conduct a parallel private investigation. The second investigation included doing a second autopsy. Both autopsies showed that the couple were killed by ligature neck compression, which means strangulation with an object, and both also found that their toxicology results were clean. But the second autopsy noted something that the first one had not. This was thin bruising on the couple's wrists like they had been bound by something. But when they were found, there were no bindings, not on their wrists, not even nearby. They were gone from the scene. So if they were bound by the hands, like this autopsy is reporting, someone had to have removed these bindings, and therefore a third party was involved. The autopsies also did agree on the broad time of death, which would have been between Wednesday night and Thursday evening. But through the investigation, this has been narrowed down to very likely be Wednesday night after they returned home from Apotex. So the first autopsy did not rule that this was murder, but the second one did. Basically said, barring any other evidence, this appears to be a double homicide. So to figure out if this could have been a murder-suicide, the investigators, both the police and the private ones hired by the family, looked into Honey and Barry's lives for any clues any signs something was amiss with them, and they really came up with nothing. They couldn't find any evidence of infidelity. There was a possibly misheard or misinterpreted statement. Honey had hired a woman to come to the house to help her clear things out before they listed it for sale, and that woman said that while she was at the house, a gift bag was delivered, and Honey made a comment about how it was from a hotel sending a thank you for another one of Barry's affairs. The woman interpreted this as meaning he cheated, but that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Even if Barry cheated, why would Honey tell a woman she barely knew? The couple's image and reputation meant something in the community, and I'm not saying Honey was keeping up appearances, but this is the sort of thing Now, we all tend to be more discreet about. Why would Honey tell a total stranger? And also, I don't understand why the assumption would be this was a sexual affair and not a thank you for a business affair or maybe a charity event. No one else who knew the couple believed there was infidelity on either side. As far as their marital relationship, everyone said the same thing. They argued from time to time, mostly about things like Barry working a lot and not being home enough. But these are really nothing more than anyone else argues about. The investigators then looked into Barry and Honey's mental and physical health, and everything there was fine. There was no sudden terminal diagnosis or change in circumstances in that regard. And then there were no money problems. The only exception here may have been that Apotex, the company, had lost quite a bit of money and was looking at possible layoffs. 
but they weren't going under. And even if they were, Barry had more than enough personal wealth to get by. And he had been running this business for so long that he had been through ups and downs and survived recessions. This wouldn't have been anything that he saw as all-consuming and insurmountable where he would have to end it all. If anything, this exploration into the couple and what was going on in their lives at the time showed that they were both looking ahead to the future. Barry's last email was about a drug that's still in development. They had a social calendar and a travel calendar planned out for months. But as the police continued to investigate these various theories, on December 21st, a joint service was held for Barry and Honey. The family had to rent a convention space because there were 6,000 attendees, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Their kids pledged to carry on Honey and Barry's real legacy, their legacy of giving. It was about a month after the funerals in January 2018 that the Toronto police announced that they did believe that this was a double homicide and both Barry and Honey were victims, not perpetrator and victim. We don't know why they concluded this. In the documents the Toronto Star did manage to recently get unsealed, they listed five reasons. However, all five reasons were redacted. So we know they changed their minds. We know there's five reasons they did it. But we don't know specifically what those five reasons are. For all we know, they could have been things I have actually mentioned. There was a lot of talk at the time that the police were being swayed by the family, by their private investigation, or even by higher-ups who were trying to protect the Sherman legacy within Toronto. But this document proves that there were specific reasons listed to classify this as a homicide and not a murder-suicide. Like I said, we just don't know what those reasons were, but they have them. And really, it's at this point that what has been the hardest part of this case started, the investigation into who this could have been. On the one hand, this looks like it may have been a professional hit because the killer or killers were in and out without leaving behind indications they were there. But on the other hand, this was an up-close and personal murder. Barry and Honey, frankly, would have been terrified. This would have been psychological torture as well as a painful experience. Would a hitman have really done that, made sure they suffered like that? And the way they were found looks like an attempt to stage a suicide scene, make it look like a murder-suicide, even having Barry with his feet crossed and his glasses on, making it look like he went peacefully by his own hand, when we know that's not what happened. It's also not been determined if it was possibly more than one killer. In order to overpower both, you would assume two or more killers, but there is also reason to believe Honey was killed first before Barry even got home. She had been struck in the face. Possibly she put up a bit of a fight. Barry was not injured in that way. 
but his papers and his gloves were found on the ground right inside the garage door. So was Barry ambushed as he came in from the garage and didn't have a chance to fight back? They were found next to each other in similar positions, but that could have just been staging. It doesn't mean they died at the same time. In November 2020, so just a couple weeks ago, it was reported that the Toronto police had a person of interest in the case, but no arrest was made. It was then clarified the next day that they actually identified multiple persons of interest, not a single one, and they were following up on all of these people currently. But it doesn't sound like they're saying all of these persons of interest were working together or were linked, just that they were identified, and they needed further investigation to rule them in or out individually. As far as I can tell, the police have not given an indication of if they believe this was a single killer or multiple. They've also not given any indication if they think this was some type of business issue, a rivalry within the pharmaceutical industry, if it was a former or current employee who may have been jealous or resented their wealth. They've given nothing away as far as what these tracks they are following may lead to. This may have had to do with Barry's business dealings or his litigious nature. We are going to talk about two specific people who have come up in the media, and they've been in the media because they put themselves in front of the media, and that is Frank D'Angelo and Carrie Winter. So Frank is the guy who Barry kept funding, and honestly, he has a terrible motive. Barry did step in at one point and intervene when one of the businesses he was helping fund was going under. But it's not like he cut Frank off after that. He continued to fund other projects, something Barry's children were unlikely to keep doing after his death. So in this sense, it seems like Frank lost more than he gained in Barry's death, even if you ignore the fact that they were friends and Frank lost his friend in this murder. He also lost his funding. What Frank has said he thinks happened was that someone approached Barry with an offer and wanted Barry to do something for them or fund them, and Barry refused. The killings would have been motivated by revenge. So this is bringing us to Barry's cousin, Carrie Winter, who admitted openly in media interviews that he had the motive and the opportunity to kill his cousin. He had just lost this massive legal back and forth that had taken 10 years of his life and was now going to cost him even more. Both Carrie and Barry felt betrayed by the other one. Barry was hurt that his cousin, who he had grown pretty close to, would sue him like this. And Carrie felt cheated out of his share of his father's company. So there was more than just a lawsuit between them. There were a lot of deeply hurt feelings. Carrie also admitted in the various interviews that he didn't really have a great alibi either. On Wednesday night, the night it's believed the murder occurred, he went to a 12-step meeting. He was in recovery for his cocaine addiction at this point. And afterwards, he went home and watched something on Netflix. 
living alone, no one could really confirm this. The original window of when the crime likely occurred went into Thursday, and Carrie didn't have a really great alibi for Thursday. It was at least better than Wednesday's because people saw him. But he worked as a supervisor on a job site. He wouldn't have clocked in and out. He could have left the site at any time, and no one would have really known. And this is according to Carey himself. I'm not just speculating here. He said this could have happened. But of course he says this didn't happen. He doesn't believe that this was a double homicide at all. He has said in multiple interviews that he believes Barry killed Honey and then himself. He said it was the first thing that popped into his head when he heard about their deaths, that Barry finally snapped. And the reason Carrie assumed from the start that this was murder-suicide was based on a conversation that he allegedly had with Barry in the 1990s. He does not have a more specific date than this, just that it was sometime in the 1990s. Carrie said he met Barry at the Apotex offices at Barry's request. Barry had been miserable in his marriage for years, and believing that Carrie had connections to bad people through his drug use, he asked Carrie to arrange to have Honey killed. Carrie personally didn't really like Honey anyway, so he wasn't feeling terribly torn over this request. He went out and found someone willing to put the whole scheme into motion. But when he went back to Barry to be sure it's what he wanted, Barry then backed out. Carrie said he told two friends at the time about it, and the CBC show The Fifth Estate which is an excellent show, by the way. They said that they contacted the friends and they backed up the story that Carrie told them this back when it happened. But then Carrie took a polygraph about this incident on the Fifth Estate and he failed it. He seemed surprised that he failed and he said he wondered if maybe he embellished the story in his head. He had been in active drug use at the time, so maybe some of the details were fuzzy and it was possible he didn't meet with Barry as many times as he thought or whatever, but he stuck with the story that Barry had asked him to set up a hit on Honey. Now, here's a huge problem with this, is that this is not how polygraphs work. They cannot tell if you are simply mistaken or misremembering. Because if you think what you're saying is true, you will not give off the indications that you are lying. And that's if polygraphs can tell anything at all. I have mentioned before, polygraphs are not exactly my thing. I don't like their accuracy or lack of accuracy. Gary Ridgway, who was the Green River Killer, passed a polygraph where they asked him if he was the Green River Killer. And that was after he killed dozens of women. So I feel like certain people are more likely to pass or fail a polygraph due to things other than their truthfulness. What actually interests me about this story Carrie told is something I had to go back to articles from 2007 to find. 
I was looking at the original reporting on the lawsuit between Carrie and Barry. In a deposition, Barry said that Carrie accused him of plotting to kill Carrie's father, Lou, and then taking over the business in a way that disinherited the kids. Basically, he wasn't just saying that Barry took an opportunity, but he created the opportunity through murder. Carrie denied at the time that he made this accusation, but again, he was in active addiction at the time, and substances are known to alter and obscure memories. If Barry was telling the truth about the accusation, this means Carrie has twice accused Barry of plotting to kill someone, first Lou and now Honey. Yet there is no one else who has ever accused Barry of such things. After Carrie first told this murder-for-hire story to the media, Barry and Honey's kids once again issued a statement, this time saying that they were deeply hurt, shocked, and angered that Carrie was doing this and that they found it regrettable the media was giving him a platform to air these allegations. While Carrie has stuck with his story and his theory that Barry killed Honey, he acknowledges that he looks like a good suspect if this was murder. In that Fifth Estate interview, Carrie even gave a detailed and graphic murder fantasy he had about Barry involving cutting his head off. And as I watched that interview, I was like, where is your attorney? Particularly as he was getting strapped to the polygraph. I'm going to call this interview ill-advised. But Carrie did tell multiple news outlets he was betrayed by Barry, he hated him, he deeply resented him at the very least, but he denied he had anything to do with their deaths. He is among the very small group of people who believe this was a murder-suicide. The evidence that we have seen so far points to a double homicide by someone the couple knew. Some even say it had to have been someone who knew the layout of the house to be able to control the scene so well. The police have said that they believe both Barry and Honey were targeted. If this was someone who just wanted to take out Barry, he was alone plenty of times. There were so many other opportunities while he was out and about in Toronto, even just in a parking lot. And if it was Honey who was the target, well, the same thing. She would be home alone for hours while Barry was working. The person who did this appeared to want both of them dead. About a year after the murders, it came out in the Toronto Star that the couple had a sculpture in their basement of two people sitting, and some believe that the pose was similar to how the bodies were found, which would indicate they were very specifically posed. Personally, I think there are enough differences between how Barry and Honey were left and the sculpture, so I don't think this is necessarily a clue. I think it's a weird coincidence, but I do think they were posed. I think this was supposed to look like a double suicide or possibly a murder-suicide. And if Barry and Honey didn't have children who could afford to hire their own investigation team and pay out of pocket for a second autopsy, it may have been ruled that way. The family has offered a $10 million reward for information leading to an arrest. Hundreds of people have been interviewed. 
Security footage from the area has been scoured. The private investigators have since wrapped up their probe, and everything is turned over solely to the Toronto police. And though the Shermans are dead, the lawsuits continue, but now with their estate as a party. Kevin Donovan with the Toronto Star has worked very hard to have files and documents related to the couple's estate, as well as the case files unsealed. And that's taken up its share of the legal proceedings. The family, however, is concerned with making too much public, particularly about the estate and the beneficiaries. They're worried it will put them at a risk of harm since Barry and Honey had been murdered. The police have said they have a working theory on the case, but they are following up on all of those persons of interest they have identified. Though the case has been unsolved for three years, I do expect this one will be solved and that justice will be served. Oh, hey there. You like true crime stories, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. Who doesn't? But I gotta admit, after a while, all those stories of murder and heartache, well, they tend to go straight to my hips. So that's why I, Leroy Luna, have created a podcast called Excuse Me, That's Illegal, where we'll take a hardcore look at some softcore crimes. No TED Talks on Bundy here. The letters BTK won't be coming from these lips. Unless he had a brother that used to steal library books. Suppose I'd be willing to go balls deep into that one if that were the case. Anyways, you'll hear stories such as the Mad Pooper, a female jogger who wreaked havoc in a Colorado Springs neighborhood, using one family's front yard as her own personal dumping grounds. If this kind of content sounds like it's up your alley, excuse me, that's illegal. It's available right now on all your favorite podcatchers. So come join me. I'll be right here waiting for you.